The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to this double shift edition of The Politocrat. It is Thursday, April the 16th, 2020. I'm Omar Moore, and thank you for listening. Well, here we are. You know, we are living with this virus. Oh, my goodness. And as I always say, I really do send my best wishes, most sincere and deepest and most heartfelt condolences to anybody out there who knows someone who has passed away from this virus or who just knows someone or is themselves living with the virus because they actually have this virus. This virus is really deadly. It is deadly. This is, this is really horrific. And you, you really can't fathom it. I can't fathom it anyway. I'll speak for myself. Um, Someone on TV recently said, well, assume we, I think it may have been Dr. Sanjay Gupta here in the U S on CNN, um, I think he said, assume that we all have this virus, assume that we all have it. And that may be scary, but I think it's true. We have to, until we are tested, assume that we do all have this virus. I mean, I have said this before on prior episodes of this podcast, but I must say that whenever I cough, and that's not often, I assume that I do have this darn thing. You know, any kind of headache or anything, I assume that I do have this virus. I would stand to bet that there are many millions of other people, many millions of other people who feel the same way. That is the stress of these times that we are in. Chris Cuomo, who has this virus, he's on CNN, someone who has really, I think, inspired a number of people um, and really shown people how to try to live with this virus, but defeat it. And he still does his show night after night down in his basement. He his wife now has the virus as well. And he interviewed people who. You know, who had a grandparent who is very religious and was a a preacher, a pastor. And he said that God was bigger than this virus. And sadly enough, not big enough because that very preacher passed away. And it turns out that four of his family members, including one of the members of the family that Chris Cuomo interviewed yesterday, all have this virus. And on the very day that the grand matriarch of the family died, 
two members of this young woman's family were rushed to hospital in serious condition from this coronavirus. And so the other members of the family as well caught it, including this young woman that Chris Cuomo interviewed last night. This virus is merciless. It takes no prisoners. Boy, this is this is really grim to say, but we have to assume that we do all have this virus, whether we have symptoms or whether we don't. As we have not yet been tested, the vast majority of us, less than three million people in the United States, at least, have not yet been tested. Excuse me. Let me let me rephrase that and correct it. The vast majority of us have not been tested over three hundred and 24 million people in the United States have not been tested yet for this coronavirus. Less than 3 million people have been tested. There must be a development of infrastructure to allow for tests and then tracing and then tracking. I know there's the risk of surveillance and all of that and overreach. And I know Google and Apple have announced that they're going to do a partnership about this. And Google particularly gets me very nervous because of their well-known tracking of everything you do online to the point in which they know what you ordered half an hour ago to eat or anything else. So, you know, I, I, I am just, um, we just have to persevere here. This is not going to be something that we just think is going to go away next week, as the numbers unfortunately show you. That's my um, thought for this double shift edition. And before I get into a couple of other things, I want to make sure that I pay tribute to this gentleman. To be a part of, of this group, to be a part of this extraordinary season uh, is, is more than I can say. I, I want to thank the theater wing. I want to thank my family. You know, the families pay for these things and the most precious commodity of all, which is time. They're all over there. Some are over there, some are in California. I just want to say thanks and love and gratitude. To Bob Falls, what can I tell you about Bob? He's the only director in the business. I can wear his pants. <laughs> and uh, our producers, David Richenthal, Bob Cole, Paul Libman, Alan Gordon, Jimmy, the rest. Thanks for taking a shot. I can honestly say that without you guys... I wouldn't have met my cardiologist, so thanks for that. A wonderful cast, the wonderful city of Chicago, the Goodman Theater, a whole bunch of great saloons, my kind of town. And most of all, a very special man, a man who for 60 years has helped us to understand who we are. And I thank you for Death of a Salesman, Arthur. Thank you for Willie Loman, and thank you for this. Thank you all. That was Brian Dennehy in 1999 in his acceptance speech for his award-winning performance. He won a Tony Award 
that's right, a Tony Award for his performance as Willie Loman in the iconic play Death of a Salesman. Arthur Miller, of course, wrote that play and obviously a, a, a legendary play um, that's been made into movies, of course, and Brian Dennehy was Willie Loman and he personified him in that great performance on Broadway. And that was a wonderful, just a portion of his speech from 1999. Brian Dennehy passed away, it was announced today, at the age of 81 from natural causes. He was a legendary stage and screen actor. And... He actually passed away yesterday on the 15th of April, but um, his passing was announced today. Had been in the business for 50 years or so and, and um, had been somebody who turned in great performances every time out of the gate. One of the things I remember him for beyond Death of a Salesman is his wonderful work in the film Presumed Innocent, where he played Rusty. One of the, I think one of the prosecutors, if I remember correctly, who was in the office with Harrison Ford. That movie was directed by Alan J. Pacula. And that movie came out in 1990. So that was nine years before Death of the Salesman, uh, the, before uh, that Tony Award winning performance. But Brian Dennehy was, as you can tell from that clip, a humorous, life-loving kind of person. He loved life. And he talked about his cardiologist there. Apparently he had had heart attacks um, and then heart trouble and you know, it gallows humor um, from Brian Dennehy, who will be sorely missed. And I just wanted to make sure that I had mentioned him. Brian Dennehy, who passed away yesterday at the age of 81, we're losing so many greats, um, and he is certainly among them. And my condolences to his family. And Brian Dennehy, rest in peace. Headlines. There's been uh, one or two items. Uh, stories that have uh, come along here in the last uh, little while. This was a story actually from yesterday by Amber Jameson from BuzzFeed. And this was before we found out about the 5.2 million additional people here in the United States who last week filed for unemployment benefits. The headline here from Amber Jameson's article, Landlords are allegedly asking for sex from tenants who can't afford to pay rent right now. And one of the lead lines is, quote, we've received more cases at our office in the last two days than we have in the last two years, one women's advocate told BuzzFeed News. And that is the sexual harassment that's going on. It's going to read, a couple of lines here. One woman unable to pay her April 1st rent after losing her income due to the coronavirus crisis says she texted a prospective landlord inquiring about a more affordable property. He responded, 
with a dick pic. Another newly unemployed woman said she asked her landlord if she could pay her April rent once she had work again. He replied by telling her she could come over and spoon him instead. These are just two of the ten complaints of sexual harassment by landlords filed with the Hawaii State Commission on the status of women since the COVID-19 outbreak began. We have seen an uptick in sexual harassment, said Cheryl Ring, the legal director of at Open Communities, a legal aid and a fair housing agency just north of Chicago. Ring said her organization has seen a three-fold increase in sexual harassment complaints relating to housing in the last month. Quote, since this started, they, landlords, have been taking advantage of the financial hardships of many of their tenants in order to coerce their tenants into a sex-for-rent agreement which is absolutely illegal, said Ring. This makes me very angry. And as I keep saying, one of the things you get to see about what has happened, once one of the things you get to see from this coronavirus, this pandemic, it brings out the best and worst in people. The best in people who do good deeds, selfless deeds, and help others. And then the worst of people, like these landlords, at this time. And I know that sexual harassment goes on 24-7, 365. Landlords participate in it. All kinds of people, usually and most often, always men doing this to women. There's obviously a power dynamic here when you've got landlords who can decide whether you stay in your apartment or evict you. Trying to force you into looking at a sex option. I mean, can we just really be brutal about this? I think this even goes deeper and worse than the harassment itself. This is rape, in my view. Don't you think this is a form of rape? I do. I kind of, you know, I, I would go that way. And I would say that I think that what these landlords are doing, these male landlords, is equivalent to rape. Now, I I do apologize for offending many people who've just heard me say that because there are survivors out here who would vehemently disagree with me. And I do apologize for offending them. And what they've gone through, I have no idea of, and I am in no place to even dream of in my craziest nightmares, equating this. What I am saying is that this is just yet another way that men in power do these obscenely, grotesquely, 
evil things to women. This is a violation. And that's what I really mean. This is a violation of these women. And it must end right now. I've had enough of this. And if you are a man and you have had enough of this, of these men out here being violent to women, doing all of these things, the harassment, I urge you to speak up and speak out and let your voice be heard. And also, if you see this, make sure that you have a talk to that man who is doing this kind of thing. Men have to step up to the plate. Stand up and be counted. Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions with People Get Ready. Yes, we should be getting ready indeed for this coming November because it's going to be a heck of a ride. And it's going to be a heck of a ride between now and then. And we have to be prepared. On Monday, Bernie Sanders, the number one challenger to Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination, formally endorsed Joe Biden in a joint live stream. I thought it was really well done. So that happened on Monday. And I'll touch a bit bit more upon that a little bit later, but that was Monday. Then on Tuesday, we had this, and I'm going to play you about five minutes of this because I do think that it is important to hear it, I think, um, given um, what is going on here. So it's going to be five minutes. I just want to let you know that. And I think it's from a very, uh, a voice that you will find to be very familiar to you for the next five minutes. This was on Tuesday of this week. 
But if there's one thing we've learned as a country from moments of great crisis, it's that the spirit of looking out for one another can't be restricted to our homes or our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our houses of worship. It also has to be reflected in our national government. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience, honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made. And he became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. He's someone whose own life has taught him how to persevere, how to bounce back when you've been knocked down. When Joe talks with parents who've lost their jobs, we hear the son of a man who once knew the pain of having to tell his children that he'd lost his. When Joe talks about opportunity for our kids, we hear the young father who took the train home each night so he could tuck his children into bed. And we hear the influence of Jill, a lifelong teacher. When Joe talks to families who've lost a hero, we hear another parent of an American veteran, a kindred spirit, somebody whose faith has endured the hardest loss there is. That's Joe. Through all his trials, he's never once forgotten the values or the moral fiber that his parents passed on to him and that made him who he is. That's what steals his faith in God, in America, and in all of us. That steal made him an incredible partner when I needed one the most. Joe was there as we rebuilt from the Great Recession and rescued the American auto industry. He was the one asking what every policy would do for the middle class and everyone striving to get into the middle class. That's why I asked him to implement the Recovery Act, which saved millions of jobs and got people back on their feet. Because Joe gets stuff done. Joe helped me manage H1N1 and prevent the Ebola epidemic from becoming the type of pandemic we're seeing now. He helped me restore America's standing and leadership in the world on the other threats of our time, like nuclear proliferation and climate change. Joe has the character and the experience to guide us through one of our darkest times and heal us through a long recovery. And I know he'll surround himself with good people, experts, scientists, military officials who actually know how to run the government and care about doing a good job running the government and know how to work with our allies and who will always put the American people's interests above their own. Now, Joe will be a better candidate for having run the gauntlet of primaries and caucuses alongside one of the most impressive democratic fields ever. Each of our candidates were talented and decent with a track record of accomplishment, smart ideas, and serious visions for the future. And that's certainly true of the candidate who made it farther than any other, Bernie Sanders. Bernie's an American original, a man who has devoted his life to giving voice to working people's hopes, dreams, and frustrations. He and I haven't always agreed on everything, but we've always shared a conviction that we have to make America a fairer, more just, more equitable society. We both know that nothing is more powerful than millions of voices calling for change. And the ideas he's championed, 
the energy and enthusiasm he inspired, especially in young people, will be critical in moving America in a direction of progress and hope. Because for the second time in 12 years, we'll have the incredible task of rebuilding our economy. And to meet the moment, the Democratic Party will have to be bold. You know, I could not be prouder of the incredible progress that we made together during my presidency. But if I were running today, I wouldn't run the same race or have the same platform as I did in 2008. The world is different. There's too much unfinished business for us to just look backwards. We have to look to the future. Bernie understands that, and Joe understands that. It's one of the reasons that Joe already has what is the most progressive platform of any major party nominee in history. Because even before the pandemic turned the world upside down, it was already clear that we needed real structural change. That was just a portion of President Barack Obama's endorsement of Joe Biden from Tuesday. And this was a 12-minute endorsement. And it was an excellent speech. And the portion I played, that five-minute portion, was really important because it, of course, addressed some very clear things. One, of course, the present guy in the White House is a complete disaster and a failure. Donald Trump, of course, that is that person who is that disaster and that failure. And President Obama spoke very diplomatically without having to mention his name, but everybody knows who he was talking about. Honesty in the White House, decency, grace, people, someone who will tell the truth, someone who won't, you know, look out for his own self-interest before those interests of the American people. Well, obviously, we all know he's talking about Trump. The other thing that was interesting in that clip that you just heard is what he said about Bernie Sanders. And yes, there have been disagreements between the two of them. But they are in agreement on trying to make the country a better place for everybody. And he did give Bernie Sanders some very favorable things in terms of uh, thanking him and all of those kinds of things. In fact, we have heard very clearly from behind the scenes, off the record and on the record, that it was President Obama who actually made phone calls to people like Pete Buttigieg to drop out of the race so as to make the path for Joe Biden easier against Bernie in an all-out effort prior to Super Tuesday to push the momentum for Biden over the top as against Bernie. So... It's interesting now, you know, the politics of these things are pretty clear. But the key thing about what you just heard there was what he said about the young people and about this progressive movement. And that how Joe Biden would need them in November. Well, the key thing is. It's not just that Bernie Sanders is going to bring these individuals along. And as a Bernie Sanders supporter, I mean, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. You know, I've had my issues with Joe Biden. I've, I've talked about them, particularly when it comes to Tara Reid. Um, I have, you know, I, I believe her 100 percent. 
So, you know, that what that's one of my issues with Joe Biden. But there's no way on earth that I am going to sit this election out. There is no way on earth that I am going to go, oh, third party. Oh, I'm going to write in Bernie. No, no, no. For those of you who are actually thinking those things, I strongly advise you to vote for Joe Biden in November. And if your state has not yet voted in its primary, when it gets a chance to, whether it's vote by mail, preferably, or anything else, please make sure that in the primary, you vote for Bernie. And then this November, vote for Joe Biden. That's how this gets done. But to my point about Barack Obama, President Obama, the young people aren't just going to flock to Joe Biden just because Bernie endorses Joe. Joe Biden's campaign will have to do the outreach. Joe Biden's campaign will have to do that. And there was a letter this week that circulated from various movements, younger people's movements, including the Sunrise Movement, an excellent organization they are, of young people invested in slowing down climate change and bettering the environment. And they are such a forward-thinking group. It really is inspiring to see young people doing this because our generation has failed. The boomer generation has failed. We've failed. We have failed miserably. We have failed miserably. Generation X has failed miserably on the issue of climate and a lot of other things. So this group of organizations came together, penned a letter and sent it to Joe Biden and said, look, you know, you are going to have to, if you want our support, you are going to have to do this, 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 and this and reflect these positions in your policies and advocate for them. And when you get into the White House, please, you must do these things. And those are the demands I think are well and truly what we should all be doing. For those of us who are the progressive movement, who are in it, who are progressives, like myself, by the way, and like some of you may be who are listening to this, this is how you stay engaged. The progressive movement, as Elon Omar said the other day in a New York Times article, is bigger than one person. And I've always felt that way. It's bigger than Bernie Sanders. These ideas existed before Bernie. Bernie was a candidate who harnessed the ideas that were already out there, that were already being talked about by Occupy Wall Street, by Black Lives Matter, by all of these other movements. And he, as a politician, understood that you had to marshal that idea, marshal that movement and turn it into a campaign and get everybody in that movement involved with you and forcefully advocate for the things that they had been advocating for for years before. Bernie, to be fair, has been arguing and advocating for these issues for decades. But what he needed was a movement. And then he needed to bring a coalition of that movement and advocate to that movement, for that movement, on behalf of that movement, when speaking truth to power. And Bernie Sanders has done that successfully in two campaigns. Yes, in neither campaign did he win the nomination, but he has succeeded in leaps and bounds in moving this country called the United States of America 
ever further left, ever more progressively to the left. We've seen the number of female candidates coming through as senators and as House members over the last few years. This is not all due to Bernie, but it's due to the progressive movement that has obviously responded to his candidacy and others and has activated a mission in people to elect people who are more progressive, who are fighting for all of us. Premier Jayapal, for example. You've got AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You've got Elon Omar, who I've mentioned. Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley. You've got numerous other people all over this country. People who are from the LGBTQ community. Who have been elected to governorships, who have been elected to city councils, to the House, to the Senate over the last few years. And what Joe Biden must do is not just say, join us. What he must say is, how can I help you? What can I do? I'm here to listen to you. Because it's one thing to say, I need you and I hear you. And it's one thing to say, join us. But since Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic presidential nominee, the onus, quite frankly, is on Joe Biden to reach out to the progressives, to Bernie and his supporters, but to the progressives, and I know Bernie and his, and I've talked about this before, I know Bernie and Joe are working together, their staff members, their staff, respective staffs are working with each other to start to bed in some of these progressive ideas. But it's one thing for one solitary candidate whose team is doing that. And it's quite another when you have a whole movement of young people and other people who believe in progressive ideas in moving this country forward to a healthier place for all of us where we all get fair, just, equitable treatment and respect. And that's the, the heavy lifting that Joe Biden now has to got to do. Now, look, he started to do things. I know there's some progressives who bristled at this lowering the Medicare age by five years to 60. Joe Biden is not a poster child for Medicare for all. He's not a fan of it. So one of his quote unquote compromises was, well, we can lower the age five years to 60. Well, yeah, is it not great? No, yeah, correct. It's not great, but it's a start. And we have to keep pushing him. And he has also said, well, you know, we're going to forgive the debts of people who went to community colleges and also to state-run colleges and also to HBCUs. Your debt's forgiven. So that's a, a sizable number of people, but it's not everybody. And the pres progressive movement is going to have to realize as well that if Joe Biden certainly has to concede some things, and I hope concede a whole lot more, we've got to keep pressuring him to do that. But he's not going to give up the whole shop. And I do hope that these movements realize that and that Bernie's supporters, some of whom right now are still going, well, you know, 
I'll never vote for Joe Biden. Some of them are on Twitter. And quite frankly, I disagree with them. They have their opinion. I have mine. But to say that you're never going to vote for Joe Biden when you've got someone destroying the very country that you're living in, that if that person gets four more years, we might all be in concentration camps in this country, except the very richest of us, is real lunacy. We cannot afford to sit on the sideline and put the primacy of Bernie Sanders, who has dropped out of the race, as the price of risking a loss in November. We tried that before, some of us who voted for nobody in particular, or Jill Stein in 2016. And I know people who voted for her. They regret that choice now. Especially when they found out that Jill Biden, Jill Biden, that Jill Stein, the Dr. Jill Stein, was around, sitting around a table the year before in 2015 with Vladimir Putin two seats away in, on that same table. Yeah, they maybe had a change of heart, shall we say. So these progressive movements, and I really applaud them for standing their ground. But they are going to have to realize that Joe Biden is not going to give up the entire shop. That's what negotiations are. You have to keep pushing him. We all have to. And Joe Biden will have to go further as well. Joe Biden, thanks to Bernie, but by default now, and thanks to voters, I guess, as well, obviously, who've been voting for him continuously now since South Carolina. Joe Biden is going to be the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party. So he has won this nomination, in essence, right now already. And since he is the winner of the nomination, since he's the nominee, he does have the right. (laughs) He does have the right to fashion his vision and the campaign for the White House as he sees fit, as his advisors see fit. Now, we may not agree with it. I may not agree. You may not agree. But as the winner of the nomination, he has that right, just as Bernie Sanders would have that right. If Bernie Sanders had won this nomination and Joe Biden came in second and Joe Biden and his supporters said, well, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do that? To bring us on board with you, to bring my supporters in, here's what we'd like. Those supporters would surely also have to realize and those movements would surely have to realize that Bernie Sanders is not going to give up the entire progressive shop so that the centrists and moderates can have everything they want. It just wouldn't happen with Bernie and nobody, quite frankly, should be expecting it to happen with Joe Biden. We shall see how this all plays out. But there's one other person that I have to tell you about. And I'll do so 
in just a few moments. That's Robert Miles with Children, the Dream Version. Great tune. Welcome back to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. So there is one other person that you haven't heard from. Think about all the Democratic presidential candidates, all 20,000 of them who ran over the last uh, year and a half or so. And there's pretty much only one that you haven't heard from. And for the next mm, three minutes or so, see if you can figure out who this is. This happened on Wednesday, yesterday, the day after, the day after President Obama endorsed Joe Biden. He grew up on the ragged edge of the middle class in Scranton. He committed to public service early in life and never stopped serving. And he's faced unspeakable tragedy with fortitude and grace. And these experiences animate the empathy he extends to Americans who are struggling, no matter what their story. Empathy matters. And in this moment of crisis, it is more important than ever that the next president restores Americans' faith in good, effective government. Joe Biden has spent nearly his entire life in public service. He knows that a government run with integrity, competence, and heart will save lives and save livelihoods. And we can't afford to let Donald Trump continue to endanger the lives and livelihoods of every American. And that's why I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as President of the United States. I've seen the Vice President help a community heal. One year of the day after the Boston Marathon bombings that tore up bodies and tore our sense of safety and community, he was here. People who'd been hurt, 
people who were afraid. He gave them peace and he gave them grace. I watched it up close. We are Boston. We are America. We respond. We endure. We overcome. And we own the finish line. But when Donald Trump is gone, we will need to do more than heal a nation that has been bitterly divided. We will need to rebuild and transform our country. And I've seen Joe Biden help a nation rebuild. In 2009, President Obama put him in charge of leading the implementation of the historic Recovery Act to save our economy and help working families. During the recovery, and later when I worked in the White House setting up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I saw him up close, doing the work, getting in the weeds, never forgetting who we were all there to serve. Among all the other candidates I competed with in the Democratic primary, there's no one I've agreed with 100% of the time over the years. But one thing I appreciate about Joe Biden is he will always tell you where he stands. When you disagree, he'll listen. And not just listen, but really hear you and treat you with respect, no matter where you're coming from. And he's shown throughout this campaign that when you come up with new facts or a good argument, he's not too afraid or too proud to be persuaded. Joe Biden was there at the very moment I became a senator. He swore me in. And when he did, he said, you gave me hell and you're going to do a great job. Because that's the thing about Joe. He wants you in the fight with him. And when you're in the fight with Joe at your side, you know you have a partner who's committed to getting something good done for this country. Joe Biden is a selfless public servant. He is committed to the fight for social, racial, and economic justice. Joe Biden will lead a government that works for the American people. And now it's up to all of us to help make Joe Biden the next president of the United States. Let's get to work. Go to JoeBiden.com right now and chip in your five bucks, make some phone calls, send some texts. We are all in this together now. That was, of course, as you know by now, Senator Elizabeth Warren. She was the last Democratic candidate to endorse Joe Biden. Now, not every single person has made a video um, or has even made a big uh, statement, but pretty much all of the Democratic candidates who ran, the major ones at least, have come out with a tweet or a statement or a press release or a video or some kind of public statement saying that they back Joe Biden. And it was strange to me. I was thinking, you know, Senator Warren has not yet endorsed Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders had. And then the next day, as I said, just on Tuesday, President Obama did. So why was Wednesday, yesterday, the day after Obama endorsed, the time for Senator Warren to come out and endorse? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. <laughs> That's why I asked the question. But I noticed this video, and you can watch it on YouTube at Elizabeth Warren's channel. Just go and um, put in Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, or Elizabeth Warren endorses Joe Biden, and you should get 
Elizabeth Warren's official YouTube channel. It's a three minute, 43 second video for those of you who want to make sure that it is the official statement and not just a portion of the video or someone commenting on it. And I found this interesting because you, you, when you watch that video, you will see portions of that video look like the kind of thing that you would see in a video, the kind of video that you would see at the Democratic National Convention, the kind of video that you would see as an introduction to the presidential nominee before he or she gives their speech on the convention floor. And as I was watching this video the other day and a few more times, I thought, wait a minute, this looks just like the kind of video, at least portions of it certainly did. And you might think the same once you watch it, if you haven't already. This looks like the kind of video that would be shown at the Democratic National Convention just prior to introducing the presidential nominee. And I, I got to thinking. The video looks very much like something you'd see at the DNC, Democratic National Convention. And the video was from a candidate who announced who announced her endorsement of Joe Biden the day after President Obama did. Now, President Obama picked Joe Biden as his running mate. And President Obama did that, and Joe served as vice president with him for eight years. And I got to thinking that I think Elizabeth Warren is going to be Joe Biden's pick for vice president. That is what I have come to conclude from all of this. Now, I listened very carefully, and I'm sure you will again to this when if you watch it again or listen to this audio cast, this podcast, or if you watch the video. And listen closely to what Joe Biden, how he's being described by Senator Warren. And notice that she says, go to JoeBiden.com. None of the other candidates that I can remember said that. Bernie didn't say that. I mean, Bernie did appear on a live stream with him. And I guess he didn't have to say that because it was pretty obvious. Because they were appearing together on Joe Biden's live stream. But it's interesting that Elizabeth Warren included his website. And of course, that might be just a genuine attempt to say to her supporters and to anybody watching, hey, look, go to his website, donate, do this. do." But it was just interesting to me. It went beyond, in my view, what a usual endorsement of a fellow Democratic competitor would do, would be. And I really am beginning to think that Elizabeth Warren is going to be the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden. And on Twitter this morning, I am just uh, at the popcorn R-E-E-L, no less. And I, I, I ruminated on this and I tweeted out, you know, I think that 
Joe Biden is going to pick Elizabeth Warren. That's my prediction, and I'm sticking to it. That was basically the tweet. And I did add to that and said, well, you know, I'd prefer, personally, Stacey Abrams, which I would, by the way, because geographically that works, demographically that works, generationally that works. Stacey Abrams, like Senator Warren, is a fighter. Stacey Abrams had that gubernatorial election stolen from her by Brian Kemp, who, of course, was the Secretary of State for Georgia and was running for governor. He stole that election from her. There's no question about it. There was evidence of that. Voter, voter purging, voter suppression. And this is the governor now who embarrasses the state of Georgia by saying, well, you know, I didn't know that asymptomatic people, asymptomatic people could spread this virus. Yeah, I just found out about it last week, he said. Yeah, I just found out yesterday. Last week he had that, or the week before. I just found out about it. Yeah, right, okay. But I do think that Stacey Abrams makes more sense as a a VP because she's also a Southerner, being from the state of Georgia, and that would balance out that ticket. It would balance out that ticket really well, I think. But what threw me off away from that? I mean, Stacey Abrams has been is an educator. She's a, I mean, she's worked tirelessly in her state. She's worked in the state legislature. She's worked with Republican legislators. She's worked with farmers across Georgia, got them better deals. And I talked about farming in an episode yesterday, of course, regarding Michigan and Gretchen Whitmer and these, you know, Governor Whitmer and all these ridiculous protests against her which are all political and misogynistic based. You know, Stacey Abrams had a track record working with Republicans, doing all kinds of things. And so I think that's a tremendous advantage. She's a great advocate. She gave a response to a State of the Union address uh, last year or two ago and was excellent. Excellent. People were already, I remember it was about a year or two ago that she gave the response and people were saying she should be running for president. There's been talk about her, you know, she was asked about whether she'd be, want to be a VP pick. And she said she would love, love to entertain it. It would be an honor to be asked. But is that a case of her being too public about it or the media putting too much spotlight on her? Or is it a case of the inevitable? I don't know. I don't know. There, was, there were rumors that among Joe Biden staffers last year that they were floating the idea of Stacey Abrams and that they would announce that now to give him a boost because he was flagging so badly in 2019, remember? And then they kind of retreated from that and, you know, then it's come back up again and then it kind of has drifted a bit and and now Elizabeth Warren and there's been a few times over the last few weeks where Joe Biden has mentioned her name. I think her ideas on this are good. I think her, he mentioned it during the debate, the only debate that he had with Bernie Sanders last month. The only debate that they ever had was that one last month in the middle of the month of March. And he did say, you know, yeah, there's some really great ideas from Senator Elizabeth Warren. Why did Elizabeth Warren decide to endorse Joe Biden after both Bernie Sanders, who was the main challenger to him, 
and the President of the United States, Barack Obama, the last real President of the United States, Barack Obama endorsed him. Why was it that Elizabeth Warren did so on the very next day? Let me also float this for speculation. And I know speculation is not the wisest thing. But I will say this. The reason, another reason I think Elizabeth Warren is going to be the choice is that Elizabeth Warren has worked with both Well, she's worked with the guy, the man, the president that both Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren have worked with. Well, I just kind of sounded very circular there. But I should say both Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren have worked with President Obama. Elizabeth Warren worked under President Obama. And was on his team in his cabinet. And she, of course, started the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I wonder if President Obama has suggested Senator Elizabeth Warren to Joe Biden. We know that Joe Biden and President Obama are good friends. We know that. They served together in the Senate. I'm telling you, I think it's Elizabeth Warren. That's my point. I think it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. I just don't see any reason why Elizabeth Warren, the senator of Massachusetts, would be waiting or would endorse Joe Biden after Bernie Sanders, who was the number one challenger to Joe Biden. I wouldn't understand what the reasoning for that was other than this is her tacit or implicit notification to people who are eagle-eyed and sharp. (laughs) Oh, that's so self-serving. That's so pitiful. That is so shameless. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make here is there would be no reason for a presidential candidate to wait until after the president of the United States, Barack Obama, had endorsed his former running mate and vice president. Normally the chain would be, right? The chain would normally be in all of these things, all the candidates who ran against the other candidate endorse. And then the president endorse. That person would be the last person to endorse. That's how it usually goes. Unless, at least in this instance, I don't know if it's happened in the past, unless Elizabeth Warren was the VP pick. Do you see how that could make sense? Do you think that Elizabeth Warren is going to be Joe Biden's vice presidential pick? Or is it going to be Stacey Abrams? 
Stacey Abrams would be my choice, personally, as I've mentioned. Or will it be Kamala Harris? Will Kamala Harris be the one? Geographically, it would make sense, being that she's out here in California. Joe Biden, of course, is in Delaware or Pennsylvania, where he's really from. But Delaware is where he served as senator. Opposite sides, opposite coasts. That would make some sense. Geographically, it makes sense. Generationally and also demographically. She'd be very capable. And of course, she, like everybody, has their issues and their... uh, Some of the things that Kamala Harris has done as a senator, but not really as a senator, but more so as a a California attorney general and a San Francisco district attorney that I do raise an eyebrow or two at, and so do others. But since Joe Biden has said that he wants a black woman and that he would name a black woman to the Supreme Court, I can only think that that is the black woman that he's referring to. Kamala Harris would make perfect sense in that line of thinking. Kamala Harris would be the person, right? Decorated attorney, very, you know, successful, has been a top senator, attorney general in one of the, the, you know, the biggest state in the country. Sure, it makes sense. And I think that's where he's going to ultimately go. And Kamala Harris endorsed him several weeks ago. So I think that that is what is going to happen for Joe Biden, which leaves me back and leads me back to Senator Warren. I think Senator Warren is going to be the VP pick for Joe Biden. We'll see if I'm right. We'll see if I'm wrong. But time will tell. I'm Omar Moore. Thank you very much for listening to this edition, this double shift edition of The Politocrat. <laughs>